please be aware that this episode contains references to domestic violence and self-harm that some listeners may find distressing. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past and present. We keep kids alive, keep them out of jail, and we chase their hopes and dreams. We do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. Hello and welcome to Twofold. I'm Caroline Gurney, CEO of Future Generation, and that was Bernie Shakeshaft, founder of the awe-inspiring organisation Backtrack. Backtrack, as the name suggests, help kids who've gone off the rails get back on track. It's one of the new not-for-profit partners that Future Generation Global supports. Over the years, Bernie's won numerous awards for his work, including Local Hero in the Australian of the Year Awards. And he's truly a man who doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the talk. So how did a guy who had a very troubled youth by his own admission, turn his life around and become a lifesaver to more than a thousand young kids? That's the question I really would like answered. So Bernie, welcome. It's great to have you on our podcast. Terrific, lovely to be here. I'm going to start by asking you a question we ask all of our guests, but first a bit of background. This podcast is called Twofold because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We want to get the best investment returns for our shareholders, and we also want to get the best social outcomes for young Australians by investing in mental health and youth at risk. So Bernie, what are your two driving purposes in life? Gee, Caroline, how do I get it down to two? Let's have a crack, I think. Definitely my number one would be to leave things in a better place than I found them. That's been a philosophy of mine for quite some time. Uh, the second one, uh, like we've worked really hard for 20 years. I don't want it to be dependent just on me, this organisation. So in the words of Martin Luther King, I have a dream. He didn't have a plan, he just had a dream. And I've got one. And now we've been donated that farm. Uh, we've done something a bit crazy this year. We've started a foundation. We're not talking about what does the next five years look like. We're talking about what does the next hundred years look like. So to leave these young people with a home, a place they can go back to, and that uh, will be there well past my use by date. Excellent. So we're actually going to come to some of those those points you just raised. Speaking of the farm, I mean, you founded Backtrack in 2006. Now, what was the catalyst for that then? And also tell us how you got the farm. After my wild years up in the Territory, when we'd come back, uh, when I landed in Armidale, I got this job with TAFE. We had two local high schools. And I had 10 kids from each school that they were saying, these kids don't have a snowflakes chance in hell of making year 10. Just get them work ready. So we tried uh, about 200 things at TAFE and nothing was really working until we introduced the dogs. What do you mean by dogs? So, look, we, we got kicked out of the welding shed. The kids made a bomb on day one, blew a hole in the roof, and that, whatever we touched from computers, everything went pear-shaped and kept getting kicked out of these things. So I went and saw the boss at TAFE, and I said, look, and we're the only ones here tomorrow. I've got these pups at home. I've got these wild kids. So I got polar wild kids and polar wild pups. Can I bring the pups in? And, of course, the bureaucracy kicked in. Uh, no, nah, we can't do that. Rah, rah, rah. It's too dangerous. We need to have vet checks who's done the risk assessment. We don't have time for that risk assessment. We need to do something with these kids right here and now. So 
in burn kind of style. I just brought the pups in the next day and I took them out in the paddock and the kids were all sitting there. And, uh, while uh, Tafe Boss was back in his office again explaining my actions, I was looking over his shoulder. It was the first time I saw these washing tumble kids sitting on these tiny little pups and I just went, boom, there it is. We didn't plan that, but when the opportunistic uh, nature of what we do, I just went, that is going to work. So that was where the dogs started. But at the end of that 12 months, that hadn't got those 12, um, 20 kids work ready. Uh, one kid had suicided and another kid had gone to jail. I had 18 and I go, there's not an employer in the country that would give one of these kids a job. So in the standard operating procedure in Australia with our siloed funding, I was supposed to kick those kids out, go and get another 20 and start again. And I thought, you know what, we've made so much progress with these kids. Uh, we've just about got this thing, you know, we've stopped them fighting each other and carrying on. They're all showing up. We can start to do something here now. We're supposed to kick them out. And I felt like about, I don't know, half of the job was done. And just as we're starting to make traction, kick them out, start again. We'd have been better off not starting at all and doing anything. We were just starting to give these kids hope. And we'd taken that hope back off them. So that was the end of that year. Um, I was really frustrated going, we need to keep doing something with these kids. But uh, that's not the system. That's not the rules. That's not the way we do things. So I was at a Christmas party um, with this guy. And um, we were feeling new back to town. So I didn't know who it was. And we were having a few beers. And, and I was pretty frustrated. And I said, mate, look, all we need to do to sort this problem out is get a damn shed. Anyway, a couple of weeks goes by and I uh, get this phone call. Okay, so it's Kevin Dupay. And do you remember talking to me at the Christmas party? And I'm kind of a bit scratchy on the details there, buddy. Um, but he said, look, I want you to meet me at this dress. I don't know what this is about. I said, who are you again? Uh, Kevin Dupay, I'm the CEO of Regional Australia Bank. And correctly, so what have I said? Anyway, meet this guy down there. He's got the mayor with him and a local member. And we stand out beside the... Uh, old council depot and there's this busted old giant big shed in there and he threw me this set of keys and said there's your shed go and sort this shit out so that's how we started no business plan I certainly didn't have any funding what we had was a um, pile of boys uh, with a half finished job to complete so just some mates and myself we don't really anyone didn't call themselves youth workers or whatever we were just pitching in to, to give a bit of a hand so that's where we started a bunch of volunteers were still having to work through the week, but we were doing it on weekends. Those damn boys kept showing up. And how many boys did you have? Look, there was down to about seven at that stage that were regu regular kids. We call them the Magnificent Seven. Still know them all and all of them thriving. So I don't say they haven't had some bumpy roads, but that's where we kicked off with seven kids. And now when I um, drive through that gate and I look at all the action down there I kind of shake my head and wonder whether it's a bit feels a bit surreal sometimes so tell me how how did how did the farm come into being yeah well here we are 16 17 years down the track and uh the guy I went to school with was very senior in corrections and their family that had a family farm close to Armagh at Enmore for 45 years his mum sadly passed away and farming thing kind of wasn't uh, where he was heading in his life and um and saw me one weekend and said man and you're going, yeah, we're selling the family farm. I'm going to sell the cattle next week and um, we're going to donate all those proceeds to Backtrack. 
I thought, crikey, sacked son. That's pretty generous, but could you just give me a couple of weeks because we're in a good season, cattle prices are really high, and I said, our dream was to have a farm one day. What about if you let me see if I can find an adjustment paddock and, and we'll work with kids in a structure like that? Where Blader comes back and says, ah, Ben, he said, I've changed my mind about the cattle. So I'm going to give you the cattle, but I'm also going to give you my half of the farm. Uh, so I was a bit um, gobsmacked. But when you have an intention, something out in front, just what they teach the kids, the drain, uh, sometimes you just don't see those things coming. So the following weekend, so here I am with half a farm. And what's half a farm? How, how big's that? Uh, so half the farm is 300 acres. Wow. How generous. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how's this going to work half a farm? We'd actually just had a big feasibility study done by KPMG, did a wonderful job for us, but came back and looked at us and went, there's no way you guys can ever buy a farm. It's just not viable little crush your organisation. And they looked at every single detail, you know, what it would cost, how much to stock it. And they said, the risk is just too big. You can't do it. So another wonderful funder of ours from Sydney who's been helping us out in just really crazy different ways uh, for years. I was up at, in Armadale for a wedding and I was telling you about this crazy thing that happened with these cattle and this half a farm. It's, it couldn't take me out to show me, so I went and showed him. And um, yeah, next morning he rings me up. Oh, no, I get this text message about four chapters long. And he said, Ben, I've been thinking about this farm thing all night. He said, I've got three options. He said, the first is I'll buy the other half of the farm that somewhere I can bring my kids up from Sydney and, and whatever everybody went and they look if you and I have a fallout that's probably going to be a problem I really like option one said so option two is I'll just give you an interest free loan for the million bucks you buy the other side pay me back when you can but he went take so much focus off what you're doing and working with the kids and whatever we don't really like option two he said option three we normally don't make a gift this big but I'm going to buy the other half the farm for you so in a handful of weeks, there we were from tin shed in town to now, here we are, all done, 100-year drain, a farm, a cattle, and um, to see those young people out there, boys and girls, man, bring a tear to your Oh, that's such, a, such an amazing, amazing story. Just amazing beginning, really, isn't it, in terms of what, what you can now achieve. But let's, let's go back to your teenage years because I think that does sort of set the scene in a way. I know from what you told me, you weren't exactly the model teenager, but what, what was your youth like? Oh, look, I think my early schooling days, quite traumatic. Um, look, before I went to school now, they would diagnose me with dyslexic, uh, ADHD, oppositional behavioural defiance disorder for certain. Uh, I think Tourette's would probably help with poor mum. So I was one of those kids that this education thing was never going to bring out the best at me. So I think when you're in that position, learn pretty quick that to be seen dumb is one thing, to be seen as the class clown or the, you know, the naughty kid, and I choose, chose the class clown thing. So um, school was pretty traumatic, you know. Um, reading and writing was a really difficult concept for me. Sitting still was a really difficult concept for me. Done as I was told, it was a really difficult concept for me. Look, I think my last year at school, uh, I spent that much time in the principal's office. So I was starting to think I might have landed a bloody principal. So what, when, what age did you leave school? I uh, left a couple of times. 
and I sampled a few schools. But in year 11, I mean, you know, I came from a loving big family or whatever. Kind of all back on those days and go, if I had all that stuff, a roof over my head and a meal and a family that loved me, and I couldn't succeed in that um, system, what about if, you know, the types of kids we work with, what, what chance have they got? So I think I was in about year 11 when I finally dropped out. Back in the old days, HSC, I knew I was lining up for a school less than 100. And that shame factor, that was the final straw for me. So then what did you go and do? Of all things, and as someone that hates maths beyond belief, um, the deal was I had uh, to have a job to leave school. So I got a job at a travel agent, and the maths there just blew me out. That was more embarrassing than being at school, so that didn't last long. I went back to TAFE and did my HSC. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but there was something about that environment that was different. Come if you want to come, don't if you don't. Don't have to wear a uniform. You don't get in trouble for not showing up to classes. Do the work if you do. And I did fairly well somehow or other. But I was always destined to leave Sydney, you know. Grew up in Armadale. Did my high school years in Sydney. And that was just traumatic as well. Uh, dropping me out in Sydney was a bit like letting a feral cat out of potatoes. So traumatised everybody. <laughs> That's an expression I haven't heard. <laughs> Your experience would have really informed how you deal with, with, the, with these young people. And then you went on to be a jackaroo and a, a dingo tracker. I love that story. So how, and I remember you, you talking about how you work with some amazing people who taught you how to dingo track. Maybe, yep. maybe tell us a little bit about that. I was lucky enough to hang around with just extraordinary bushmen. You know, I went to the foot of the Snowy Mountains, out along those people, looked after me as a, a young fella, probably 18 at that stage showed me that thing about caring and not judging and, you know, because when you're 18 and you know it all, um, hanging around with people who seriously do know it all, uh, it gets a bit embarrassing. But anyway, I just wanted to be wild and ride horses. That was my big thing, you know. Um, so they moved me on to Victoria. I was lucky to work there again with another book legend, Jimmy Matthews. Um, but he was mates with big station owners up in the Territory. And he could see... Uh, the wildness and so close to Melbourne it's not going to be an ideal fit. Uh, so rolled the swag, chucked me on a bus and, and sent me up to Newcastle Water Station. Uh, and I think that's where my real education started. And where, where is that? In smack in the middle of Australia. Right, okay. Uh, so near Elliot, a bit north of Tennant Creek. Right. Big station, 10,000 square kilometres. Wow. That was the place for me to be wild. So I worked the outstations, but... Breaking bones and fighting and drinking and carrying on like a lunatic. That was just a perfect age for me to, in the Territory, particularly in those days, it was a good place to be wild and not get in trouble for it. And a lot of other like-minded wild souls up there. So that, did you go tracking? How did how did that come about? Moved on from uh, station stuff. I met a girl up there, had a baby, way too young, all that sort of thing. Kids having kids. And pretty tricky trying to learn this parenting thing and uh, had a bad buster off a horse. We really got smashed up pretty bad. Anyway, ended up in Tennant Creek and working for our community control Aboriginal organisation. I was just goofing around fixing cars and bits and pieces. But those old men were always hanging around there, you know. And um, two old fellas, Kumon Jane now, can't say any names because they both passed away. But I was lucky enough to spend a whole heap of time in the bush with those guys. 
they didn't speak English. They spoke about eight different Aboriginal languages, and I only spoke English. Um, kicking around with those guys, boy, did I start learning stuff about bush things that, I don't know, as a white fellow, I was just lucky to get exposed to and lucky enough to be open-minded enough to go, what, what is going on here? So one of the stories, part of my job was carry the chainsaw and, and carpet bits of wood they wanted to make them bearings, planting sticks or whatever, back to the ute. First time I went out bush with these guys, uh, we're out there in the bush and um, this pack of dingoes start coming around us and I'm climbing up a tree going, holy smokes, we're in trouble here. These old men, it's like they, they knew the dogs or something, you know. Anyway, uh, we get back to the car and I'm still sweating buckets going, holy smokes, that was close, we got to where we went one. We went a different direction the next morning and not as far out of town. And when we got there, that same pack of dogs was there waiting for those guys. This went on for a month. North, south, east, west, 10 kilometres from town, 70 kilometres from town, the same pack of dogs would show up. Within five minutes, or they would be there before these blokes were there. And I was going like I was waiting for my mate to get back. Hands like going, how the hell does this happen? Like, you're watching it, you're living it. It's not like somebody where you're sending the dogs a drop pin with where to make these fellas. But at the same pack of dogs showing up. So I went like, how does this work, Brody, when he came back, you know? And he went, look, it's hard to explain in whitefellow ways, but he goes, what those old men are doing is they're looking 10% behind uh, uh, what those dogs were doing yesterday. 10% of the energy or whatever you want to call it to looking at what those dogs are doing now. 80% out in front is where they see those dogs tomorrow. Whatever people want to call that or try and come up with a name for it, I don't know, visioning or something or other. Anyway, I went on to have a, an extraordinarily successful trapping career. Worked for a research unit for parts of my life and did work up on Fraser Island. Caught dogs all over Australia and it was those skill sets. And when you work with a lawman for dog, they can touch a track and describe the dog without ever having seen it. And they'll describe it exact. Male, female, how big it is. So uh, I was passed on some of those little gifts, learnt some stuff out. But eventually it just wasn't enough catching dogs and a lot of the stuff we do in Australia probably disagree with fundamentally. So it was time to move on to that. But the interesting part about that was mm, talk about them old men seeing things forward. I, I sat bolt upright in bed one morning about eight years ago and went, you idiot. Those old men weren't teaching you how to catch wild dogs. They were teaching you how to catch wild kids. Because I went, you know, the process is exactly the same. I'm not a youth worker and can move through any formal training. So I just started making stuff up, doing it. But when I look at the way we manage young people now, these kids in trauma, about 10% of the time, and we're looking at where they're from, what there is. We can't change it if the kid's been sexually abused or kicked out of home or his father's died or whatever. So if it can't do anything about that, don't spend too much time there. It's good to know it. You've got to help with understanding. Uh, then I look at um, the 10% right here now. Trouble with the cops, kicked out of school, lots of things not going on well in life. And I think a lot of youth organisations, that's where they spend that time. Back behind or here in the now trying to sort out this, how do we get the kid back in school? We don't worry too much about that stuff. Our vision is out in front for these kids. It's why we talk about where your hopes and dreams. Every kid down there can tell you what the hope and dream is in life. We spend 80% of the time 
out in front going, that's what you want. Don't worry about this messy stuff in the middle. But it was the same stuff that those old men showed me with those dogs. 10% behind, 10% now, 80% out in front. And now we've got a farm. We can be 80% out in front. I'm really doing it. So let's talk a little bit about the boys in the in the backtrack program. And it is mostly boys. You know, what, what support are you giving them at backtrack? She's our saying, uh, we keep kids alive, keep them out of jail, and we chase their hopes and dreams. And you couldn't specifically say what it is that we do. We do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. So uh, when a kid first comes into the program, usually it takes us about 12 months just to sort out their legal stuff. If they need somewhere safe to stay, then we're able to find. we just got to get stability in their life. So... That's the first part. But while we're doing that, all these other things we're wrapping around. So we've got a school teacher. We want these kids to be able to read and write. Most of them come with ridiculously low literacy and numeracy levels uh, and a whole heap of trauma. So we start chipping away at that. We do school in a completely different way. Then we start giving them these human relationship messages all the way along. So if you've been kicked out of home, you've been kicked out of school, you've been kicked out of the footy team, kicked out of the shopping centre, uh, kicked out of your community, basically. The last thing that kid can afford to hear is that there's a chance you could get kicked out. So the first thing that he hears, you can't get kicked out of backtrack. You can choose not to be there, and that's okay, but we're not kicking it out. And if they leave, you'll always welcome them back? Always welcome back. Mm-hmm. It's like parenting. I can't split the difference between parenting and, and, and the work that we do, you know? Uh, if your kid's ready to leave home, go, but if they need a hand, would you take them back? Most parents would. So we just do that, you know, that belonging. Most kids will tell you a backtrack to them is a second family. So we're working on that belonging piece, making sure you feel comfortable here. Uh, we base it on the circle of courage, which says, you know, it's the First Nations from Canada's uh, big dreaming stuff. That's the circle of courage for us all, yeah. Yep. So these four things, you get them in balance, belonging, um, being part of and connected to something, mastery, doesn't matter what you're learning as long as you're learning something, independence, uh, the kids call that uh, earning your own shit, having a say in your life, and the last one, generosity, giving back. So that's all the stuff that we're doing at the same time. We concentrate on practical skills, so chainsaw certificates and white cards, first aid certificates, anything that will make them more employable when they get through, as well as the reading and writing, but uh, we do the maths in the bush. So if you're in the shearing shed rather than sitting down and doing maths in a classroom situation that blows most of these kids up, we'll do it by weighing a sheep. How much drench does it need, you know? How do you mix chainsaw fuel? How many litres goes into that? So much more engaging. Well, that's what should have happened for me as a kid. and uh, That would have engaged me. Uh, you know, Pythagoras' theorem, I would break out into a cold sweat until I see the welding guy teaching kids Pythagoras theorem to get a gate square that sort of stuff then here's all these kids doing this ball and R&R um, calculator that can hardly read it's real isn't it it means something it's they can do something with it yeah. that's an amazing breadth of support really that you give to these kids so backtrack is quite hard to categorise so how how do you get government funding because you know it, it's it's hard to get government funding because they, they fund for a particular you know part so how do you manage government funding in australia is siloed if you work for the education department you just get money to teach kids to work and write if you work for 
the mental health department, you just work on mental health as a kid, if it's around homelessness, if it's around whatever, but it's all siloed. Uh, at Backtrack, we don't do any siloing. I know if a kid's living under the bridge, he's going to have mental health issues. Maslow taught us this, taught us this stuff how long ago, you know, uh, you've got to have somewhere safe. So we started residential. Wherever there's a gap, we just keep filling it. So government funding, uh, less than 5% of our budget is government funded. Everybody knows who we are and what we do, but they would give us government funding if we changed our model to do it the way they do, and that often doesn't work. We've set up a different thing. So unfortunately, when you take a long-term approach, when you take a holistic approach, when you do whatever it takes, whatever it takes for as long as it takes and you don't go away, and that cuts us out of government funding. Do you know we have almost um, a 90% success rate of getting these kids into jobs? And we're starting with the 5% of kids that no other service will touch. And the kids that should be locked up in prison. So if it's around success and taking kids off, our kids end up in jobs that don't end up on the dole. We're making taxpayers here. Uh, when I look at those older boys that come through and I watch them raising their own children now, I'll ask them, you know, do you reckon your kid will finish school? They look at you like you're some kind of a nut. Uh, it's an absolute given that, yeah, that kid's going to finish school, you know. Well, what about you think they'll ever have a job? Because some of these kids come out of three generations that never seen anyone go to work. This is how we break the cycle. And then when I look at that guy answering me back, saying, well, my son already has a part-time job uh, and he's still in school. I go, there you go. That's the circuit breaker. Those kids will, and to watch these young folks, you know, raising their own children and still living the same philosophies, those simple things that we taught those kids at a young age. That is, that's an amazing statistic. I mean, 90% go on to getting jobs. The other stat that I've always found incredible is that Backtrack has been credited with bringing youth crime down in Armadale by 40%. And you've managed to do that the same way. Uh, really simple stuff by taking that holistic approach. Let's have a look at the problem. I think what we're good at in Australia is defining the problem. We get stuck when it comes to the solution. So what is the problem? Kids running around on the street Friday and Saturday night, taking drugs, alcohol. Of course, there's going to be trouble. That's the same nationally. They reckon about 20% of the kids do 80% of the damage. Now, I'm not Einstein, but see if I can work this out. Say you work with those 20% of kids and you do something meaningful and constructive at those times of high risk Friday and Saturday night, what do you think might happen? This is the dogs. This is where the dogs came into it. We started taking these kids, competing in working dog high jump events, which are on a Friday and a Saturday, most of the shows. Uh, we've been doing that for seven, eight years. And you've got to travel with the dogs and the kids to get there in the first place and they're engaged. And they're winning. You know? Well, they win everything, don't they? they? <laughs> Terrifies people when you turn up to the country fair. <laughs> and actually, turn around, take their dogs, and I go, oh, here's those professionals. I'm like, oh, and very professionals. That's great for the kids' confidence, though, as well. Yeah. And we've never had a spare seat going away dog jump. You know, those kids down in Melbourne at the moment, you know. We've had a world record. We won Australian titles, but it's not kind of about that. I mean, it isn't worry because it breaks down a lot of barriers, and it's these kids seen on us. And they're good at something. And they're really good at something. And they've got an animal to care for and be responsible for. Do you know in 20 years doing that, I don't think we've ever been even chipped by a security guard. 
So these are the wildest, roughest kids that we've got that would ordinarily be in jail. Here they are uh, on the show circuit, not getting in trouble. When we started, Children's Court used to take three full days in Armada. And now Children's Court starts on a Monday at nine and it's done and dusted by lunchtime. So I think the rate is higher than 40. I think it's down about 48%, almost 50%. So we're the only... And you're the only organisation in that area that helps Only LPA, young right. New South Wales with long-term juvenile crime stats headed south, not north. What does it cost us? Not much. A little bit of care, putting some good people around them, a handful of dogs. But it doesn't have to be dogs and it's the same process whether you go to a different town in parks or wherever, you can target that 20% of kids at the time of high risk, you'll get a result. I think a lot of governments across the country are actually grappling with youth crime. And when I just look at the numbers and they seem to be on the rise, many seem to talk about incarceration as being the solution. What's your view on that? The way we incarcerate young people is a shame problem for me in Australia. If there was one thing I could change, it would be that. Do you know, 10 years of age, we can still lock a child up in Australia. Do you know what that costs? I think the latest numbers out are something like a million dollars a year to lock a 10-year-old up, and we go, that's the best solution. That's garbage. But go and have a look, whether it's Dondale in the Northern Territory, you know, and we talk to those guys. They're about to close the facility in Tasmania, you know. Um, once kids get locked up, uh, it gets worse. When you look at uh, um, reoffending, I think it's 80% of kids within 12 months go back in. Once they get on that um, cycle... It's like the window closes of hope. In the early days, we've got young people that have been locked up 10, 11, 12 times. That is not the way to bring up a child in Australia. Little known stat. Do you know, when you look at incarceration rates right around the world, including the adult population as well as kids, I think Colombia is coming first. Turkey is coming second. Have a guess who is coming third in the world. Right here in the lucky bloody country, Australia. Coming third in the world. Sorry, not good enough. If there weren't alternatives, uh, no worries. But I don't know what it is in this country where we've got this law and order thing. Have a look in Queensland. What are they doing uh, around youth crime? Building two new detention facilities. For goodness sakes, put that money. Let's get upstream and see what's going on. I don't think there is a kid that is born bad. There are just circumstances around there growing up that makes them. Why aren't we spending money and the time and the effort jumping in and doing that? Is it possible? Have a look at the Scandinavian countries. For the sakes, they're closing their jails. Some of those countries have only got a handful of kids in juvenile detention. And I'm not for one minute saying there isn't a place for it. There will always be a place. But it's not every case, you know. It's just, it's out of control. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work, and we continue to do it. Einstein's definition of insanity, keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We need to look at the causes, what is going on for a kid to end up. You know the number of young people that I work with that, uh, their first contact uh, police and with the criminal system is for stealing and stealing food. Uh, to look after, I, I, I remember this kid came in his first police caution for stealing nappies. Now, nappies. why would a 12-year-old be stealing nappies? You know? What, um, to wear them around the street or at a pub? He's doing that because he's looking after younger kids in a dysfunctional family home. That drives me mad. I go, surely we can look beyond 
that sort of stuff and go, what is going on here? But we don't. We continue to do the same thing. There is only one of you, mm-hmm. and we need more more of you. I mean, you, you, you do have an incredible record in terms of helping young people, without a doubt. So I really like the how you've looked at that sort of tracker network mm-hmm. to actually increase, you know, the way you work across Australia. So t- t- tell us more about the Tracker Network and, and how is that doing? So uh, nearly all our funding comes from private philanthropy. GG's fine example of that. So replication, can you scale it? And the number of times I've heard it just works because you're there. I go, I don't believe that. I reckon there are bernies in every town and city around the world. Can you find those people? And is it what they want to do? So... We trialled a replication years ago, seven or eight years ago, but we went into a partnership. It's too heavily reliant on us. My personal time, really. We worked out after 12 months, that's not the way to scale this thing. So for about the last six years, we've been looking at this network concept where we go and find a Bernie in a different town. Um, Often they're already there doing it uh, quietly or in a volunteer capacity, but you need someone in that town that is going to do it, that is from that town uh, and has got the grit to not go away. Then you also need an ambassador, I guess you'd call it, at the top end of town. Whether that's a mayor or a director of education or superintendent of police, you've got to have someone with the power uh, that also has uh, the belief that we can do things in a better way. Once you get those couple of things lined up, uh, then you can start making a difference. So that's what we're targeting. It's not easy. Those organisations have got to have their own governance. Uh, these are all the learnings um, that we've had, and then we put them into a network where we collect the same data. Future Generations Fund is a perfect example of this, and now we have this collective of organisations, and we can help them with that hard stuff. Because starting a small business is not easy, uh, regardless of what it is. And, you know, dealing with really complicated kids in a system that uh, is kind of up against you a little bit. And how many tracker networks are there? Well, we have something like 100 communities on the waiting list going, would you help us get something started? What we've got to do is get the model right first. You know, the data collection stuff is really important. You must be able to prove what it is that you do, having multiple funding sources and taking on the same approach that we do, you know, the holistic nature, the long-term approach to it. And so do you go and spend time there or does some of your team go and sort of, you know, in a way it's like a, a success transfer. Yeah. I love going there in the early days. I love those community meetings where people go, oh, this is not possible. As soon as I hear it's not possible, man, I'm in for the long haul. Here we go. But to see them, so yeah, sometimes I go there, but we have a really committed team. Uh, they bring those groups together four times a year and we'll concentrate on different things, you know. Do we need to work on governance? Know how to do stuff with social media? Can you tell good stories about these young people? Our particular style of youth work. Uh, we're actually developing at the moment our own training module. So we used to put a lot of kids through a cert for standard youth work, um, but that's not fit for purpose to work with the top kids we're working with. We need something uh, a whole lot more relationship kind of based, um, and and the different ways are doing what we do. So with an RTO, we're actually writing our own youth work, of course, at the moment, and um, all these guys are going through that stuff as well so you know all the little knickknacks and the things that we've learned from the best around the world over many years at the moment life is tough i mean not-for-profits are really finding it hard 
to fundraise. I mean, where where are you? I, I assume it's the same for you. So how are you coping and what do you actually need? Um, you know, the money is a thing. Without that money, we don't keep rolling. It's as simple as that. Um, we're also working with the government. We've always been chipping away in that space, but kind of has to be on our terms. We can't afford to change what it is that we do. Why do we need money? Our budget keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, when we're taking on other towns and helping them get going, now kind of fundraising to the group. So where would you be in 10 years? Where would we be? I think the replication is going to get a, a roll on. You know, there's not a state or a territory in Australia that's not asking us to come on and give a bit of a hand. Uh, I think we'll start to pop up more and more. I think the training of this stuff, we don't want Armadale to get any bigger. I think it's a perfect sized organisation uh, for a town population that size. I want to see these things replicated in as many places. Uh, how many? Uh, I don't really care. Uh, the dream is um, to make sure it's in other places that we're giving communities, we're giving kids the one thing that I love sharing the most, and that's hope. It is possible to do this stuff um, when the intention's there and you're prepared to get in, roll your sleeves up and have a go. The sky's the limit. I don't like being too small. I like the crazy stuff. And I don't like scaring my board either. Bernie, we wish you every success and thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Terrific. Thanks for taking the time to hear the story. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those that are interested in future generation, we are Australia's first listed investment companies to provide investment and social returns. We offer a unique opportunity for shareholders to invest with leading Australian global fund managers while supporting high impact, youth-focused not-for-profit organisations. Today, the companies have more than 1 billion in assets, managed by over 30 leading Australian and global fund managers. These fund managers generously manage our funds pro bono and don't charge management or performance fee. This then allows us to give 1% of our net tangible assets each year to carefully selected not-for-profit organisations. So far, the future generation companies have given 65.2 million, making us Australia's top 30 corporate philanthropists. This has been made possible through the expertise and generosity of the future generation pro bono fund managers, service providers, board directors and investment committee members, all of whom waive their usual professional fees. For more information about future generation, please go to www.futuregeninvest.com. Dot com dot au